Well, happy Easter, everyone. Jesus is risen from the dead. Well, what's that got to do with us? Which that's not a history lesson, you know, because Jesus is risen from the dead. If I can just get in Christ, that means I'm risen. So no matter what kind of obstacles, problems, difficulties, failures, rejection, pain I've had along the, the journey in life, that means I'm raised to new life. I'm raised as well. So I can be optimistic no matter what happens in the world around me. Amen. I can stay optimistic. Okay, so John chapter 20, where you just turned, I want to read this portion of the uh, Easter story, uh, and then I want to come back and draw some thoughts out of here for us. Those, those of you that know me know I'm the guy that tries to pull things out between the words, between the verses, things that other people don't think about. That's what I'm looking for. So we're going to try to pull some thoughts out here. Let's, let's read through our story in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week... While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the first tomb, or excuse me, reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separated from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside and saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. William Shakespeare says that there's two kinds of stories, tragedies and comedies. Tragedies kind of have a, a, a pattern like a frown. It starts this way, tension builds as the story goes on, and then it, it goes from bad to worse, and the hero or the heroine in the story ends up dying sacrificially at the end. That's a tragedy. The other kind of stories are a comedy. They have just the opposite kind of pattern. Comedies start out with a storyline, and as, as tension builds and the problems develop, there seems to be a, a, a tragedy looming, but then at the last minute, in the last chapter of the book, it all comes together and puts a smile on everybody's face. That's what William Shakespeare calls a comedy. I would much rather watch a comedy than I would a tragedy. I don't want to put a book down or, or switch, switch channels after I just feel unrest down on the inside. I, I, something inside me longs for a happy ending. I need a happy ending. So I'll let you decide if the story of Jesus was a tragedy or a comedy. That said, I want to share 
five aspects of the story. We're calling this message Turning Point because I believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a turning point in God's relationship with man. The Old Testament has a lot of ugliness in it. If you've read the Old Testament, there's a, it raises a lot of questions. Why would God allow that to happen? This says God actually did these things to those people. And it, it, it questions us. It makes us wonder about the love of God. But when you get into the New Covenant, the New Testament, after the resurrection, we begin seeing everything from a different perspective. The resurrection was a turning point of the story. So I want to share five things that were on the move, that were turning, that were uh, uh, shifting, changing in the story. And the first one, if you want to write this down and you're filling the blank outline you got when you came in, is that we're going to talk about the time. The time was shifting. Notice it says in our story, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. It's the first day of the week. Jesus has risen from the dead. But notice it's still dark. Have you looked around your neighborhood? Have you looked around the place where you work? Have you talked with people about how things are going in their life? If you have, you probably know that it's still dark. There's a darkness around us in our world, darkness in people's lives. But the sun's coming up. There's a resurrection that's just, it's already happened, but people don't know it yet. It's already occurred, but it's still dark. But sunrise is coming. It's a sure thing. When the sun comes up, it's when people wake up. When it's dark, they sleep through it. They pay no attention. I was an idealistic young man of 16 years old. You know, when you're 16, you have all the right answers, right? And I thought I had all the right answers. And I was just getting into popular music. And a, a young folk artist by the name of Bob Dylan released a song called The Times They Are A-Changin'. And I was reminded of that song that was a hit for the day. I was reminded of that uh, the other day. And uh, I, I, I looked into it because what I was talking about is still dark. The time is changing. It's shifting. And so I, I went to that song, and I wanted to say, I don't remember the lyrics. I want to, I want to know what the lyrics were. And as I was, I found this old black and white video of Bob Dylan uh, singing uh, The Times They Are Changing from 1963. And I, as I was listening to the words, the lyrics, the, uh, the message of the song, as I was listening to it, when I got to verse 3, the Lord visited me. And I didn't understand it. Here's verse 3. Let me read the lyrics to verse 3. Come senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway. Don't block up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. 
the battle outside raging will soon shake your windows and rattle your walls for the times they are changing. And when, I, when he sang verse 3, something just happened to me and I began to weep and I didn't understand it. There's nothing really emotional about that. I didn't know what was happening. I didn't, I didn't get it. And I began saying, Lord, what are you saying? Is, is, is there going to be some some uh, catastrophe happen in America that you want me to pray for? Is, uh, are you grieving the, the fact that people who say they believe in you have walked away from your moral values in our country? What, 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 is, what are these tears all about? I didn't understand it. And then I felt the Lord speak to me. And he said, don't you remember when I visited you and shook your windows and rattled your walls? And I thought... Oh my God, I understand now. I understand that message. And God said, I'm going to do that with my church again. I'm going to shake their windows. I'm going to rattle their walls. Nothing they've found as, as a solid foundation is going to stand. I'm going to change everything. And then I understood the tears. It was tears that God's tears for his church. That he wants his church to be responsive. It was 1963. Ten years later, folk music went out of vogue. And rock and roll music was in. Nobody wanted to listen to the old. They wanted to listen to the new. And time, it was a changing. Decade after decade, and the times they were changing found its place in the golden oldies list. Something to represent the good old days. Until earlier this year, a young Jennifer Hudson stood on a platform at the March for Our Lives rally in Washington, D.C. And the backdrop was a huge robed choir of young people singing a rousing rendition of the times they are changing. Church, they're still changing. And I've learned I can put the brakes on this changing of time all I want. It doesn't make any difference. The times, they are a changing. And I want to embrace the change. You see, the times they are changing is not an old people's song longing for the return of the good old days. It's a young person's song saying, I want to embrace the change that's coming in this world. I want to make this world a better place. I want to be involved in changing the world around me. And I want to embrace a young generation's movement to make this world a better place. I'm not just interested in preserving the way it's always been for me. I want to make it a better place for my kids and my grandkids. Amen. Thank you for saying amen. Because the times, they are changing. And I believe for some of us sitting in this room, God is all set to shake your windows and rattle your walls and something that you, that you felt was solid for all your life is going to disintegrate around you like shifting sand. And God's going to be there. So take, take the parts of your life that collapsed when the sand shifted and rebuild it on the solid rock, Jesus Christ. 
That's the first thing I want us to see. Here's the second thing I want us to see about the resurrection story. The stone was stirring. So Mary and the ladies get to the tomb, and they're going to do their version of embalming of Jesus. Now, it would defile a good honorable Jew to touch blood, so they didn't embalm bodies. But they sprinkled spices on the body, so that as the, uh, maybe a bad illustration, but it's kind of like deodorant. The more you, the more you sweat, the better it, it smells. And they would put these spices on the body of Jesus, so as it decayed, it would uh, have an effect on the, uh, the odor, the aroma coming from the decaying body. Their expectation when they got to the tomb, you know what their expectation was? We're going to get here, and there's going to be this big stone in front of the tomb. Now, we know Jesus is in there, but the stone is going to be separating us. So we've got to figure out who's going to help us roll this stone away. That was their expectation. And once we find somebody to help us roll the stone away, we're going to go into that not-so-smelling chamber, and we're going to sprinkle the spices on the body and get out of there so they can put the stone back. That was their expectation. But when they got there, the stone was already gone. It had been moved. It wasn't there anymore. And it's a good illustration for all of us of faith in Jesus Christ. Because if you can step into that empty tomb, if you can step into the plan of God, if you can step into this covenant we have with God through Jesus Christ, nothing's going to be as you expected it. I wasn't interested in becoming a Christian because I expected Christians had to do certain things. You know, they had to, they, Christians have to dress up, dress up every Sunday, right? Uh, Christians have to stop using the language they use, and I thought it didn't make any difference how I expressed myself. Christians aren't expected to go to the bars, and that's where all my friends were. Christians were just expected to be goody-two-shoes, and I wasn't interested in that. But when I came to Christ and he woke me up and when I had my window shaking, wall rattling experience, it was nothing like I thought it was going to be. Nobody ever in my church, nobody ever told me that the Holy Spirit would bring about a personal relationship with God. I didn't know that. I, did, I realized that I had a personal relationship and God would lead me and guide me and open doors and, and say no, no, no to me. I didn't realize he would actually speak to us. Three things the stone represented. Number one, the stone represented closure. I mean, there, people who had an encounter with Jesus either loved him or hated him. He spent 33 years of his life on a wild adventure. And he never knew what was going to come up the next day. 
He, he couldn't have a road map. He couldn't have an agenda for what was going to happen because he was just on the move all the time. And people brought problems to him. People brought questions to him. And he just responded to the things that came up in life. That's kind of an adventure. I like to have my calendar set first thing in the morning. I, I want to know what's going to happen. I want some appointments that I can prepare for. But Jesus just winged it. He waited to see what was going to happen. He served God day by day. And when he died at the end of his life, they put him in that tomb and they rolled the stone in front of it because it was finished. It was done. End of the story. Put a stone in front. We still do that in our culture today. When someone we, we love and care about and we know passes, we have a funeral for them, we say some words over them, we, we put their body in a grave and we put a stone over it. Closure. Closure. It's done. We'll hang on to our pictures, we'll hang on to our memories, but we know that experience is over. That's what they did. The stone in front of the tomb represented closure. Secondly, it also represents continuation. That stone was going to be there until the problem of the odor dissipated. The body would decay. It wouldn't smell very good. It wouldn't be a very pretty picture. That's why they wrapped it up. And after that body decayed over a season of time, it wouldn't smell anymore. And they would go in and gather up the bones and take them out someplace and bury the bones. Tombs were temporary. But the stone in front of it means it's permanent until we can take, until we can take him out of there. Continuation. The Bible says the stone sealed the tomb. Seal. It's like, it's, it's like when, you, uh, uh, when you have an official document, they will put a seal on it, which makes it legal. You can take that to any court, and it'll stand up for you. They, it's sealed. The stone symbolized permanence. Third thing stone symbolized is confinement. We do not want what's in there getting out. We want it confined. We want it localized to that small chamber inside that rock. We want it confined. Nothing's getting in. Nothing's coming out. That's what a stone represents. And when they got there and the stone had rolled away, nobody knew what to think. What happened to the, the closure, the continuation, the confinement? What happened to that? What happened to his body? Where is it? Left a big mystery. The empty tomb is a mystery that people in the 21st century have to deal with. Uh, you may not be interested in church. You may not be interested in this Jesus stuff. You may not be interested in some rules that... that, that hold you in a certain pattern, but what are you going to do with the empty cross? How are we going to deal with that? 
The empty, I'm sorry, I said empty cross, empty tomb. How are we going to deal with that? We have to deal with it some way. Because when we come to Christ, every foundation that we stand or we build our lives upon is going to move. It's going to shift. Nothing is solid like we thought it would be. Here's the third thing I want us to see about this Easter story. The leadership of the church was swapping. It was changing out. Up to this point, everybody would agree Jesus was the leader of the disciple group. Now he's gone. So it would naturally would default to the next natural leader. And if we go back and read through the Gospels, we can see who the natural leader of the disciples is. It's Peter. Peter's the natural leader. So when they heard that the tomb is empty, the stone's been rolled away, Peter, who's probably among the oldest of the disciples, and the other disciple, notice it, his name wasn't mentioned, that's because the apostle John wrote the gospel of John and he was very humble and never mentioned himself in the gospel of John. He always referred to himself as the one, the, the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, the, or the other disciple. <clears throat> so it's Peter and John that are running to the tomb and they've got almost a foot race going. There's excitement. You know, if you're not, I, it may, you're probably a lot like me. If if I've got some tense situation I have to deal with, I, I want to put it off as long as I can. I'm hoping the problem will go away. Or maybe somebody else will solve the problem for me. I don't want to jump into the fray. I put it off, put it off, put it off till I don't have any other choice. So Peter and John are racing. You see, you don't put off something that has your interest, that you run into. So they're running to the tomb, and they get there almost at the same time. But notice it said, John outran Peter. I think that's significant, that the old man was running alongside the young man, but the old man stopped. They both stopped in front of the tomb. There's a, there's a race. John got there first. He's younger. That tells me there's a young generation coming up that's going to outrun me. There's a young generation sitting in this church that's going to outrun the older generation. Oh, nothing, uh, nothing negative about the older generation. I mean, this church wouldn't be here if there wasn't an older generation that stayed faithful and steady and, and believed what they believed and acted on what they believed. But there's a young generation coming that's going to run faster than the old generation. They're going to be in tune with reaching a young generation that an older generation can't reach. You see what I'm saying? And I want to embrace a younger generation that's got more energy than I've got. 
and understands how a lost world out there thinks better than I do. I've kind of been isolated among Christians. And Christians give, uh, how do I say it? You treat me a little different than people out there do. We love one another around here. We respect one another around here. People out there don't have respect for the ministry. They don't have respect. It doesn't mean I shouldn't care about them. But I don't know how to communicate with them anymore. I used to. Matter of fact, that's how we built our church. I knew how people in the world thought because I had been out there. And I want to embrace a young generation Amen. that's going to reach a young generation outside of these walls that I can't reach. And they're going to do it with different methods. Their young generation's going to look for shortcuts. My generation, I don't want to look for shortcuts. If it's going to take me twice as long to learn your shortcut, I'd rather do it the old way. So I'll use apps. I'll, I'll use the computer. But don't make me have to go back through and change my password every time I get in there. <laughs> it's tough to teach an old dog new tricks. But there's a young generation that that's natural native language for them. They've been working with computers since they were in elementary school. If I got a problem with my computer, I call up one of my sons. In just a couple years, I'll be calling up my grandkids. <laughs> Can you come fix this for me? It's, the, it's not just with computers. That's the way it is in our culture. And if we're going to reach a young generation, we're going to have to speak their language, and that includes their music. Let me tell you how we built New Hope Christian Center. Back when it was Calvary Chapel... And it had roots as a non-instrumental church. It was forbidden to have a musical instrument in the church. And God called Anita and I to work in that church. We had to deal with a whole lot of resistance. A whole lot of people that didn't want to deal with musical instruments or they didn't want to hurt someone else's feelings, so let's keep it the way it is. But we knew to reach a young generation, to build the church, we had to do it different. Because there's a young generation out there that's not the least bit interested in singing two and three hundred year old songs that are in a whole nother style that they know nothing about. So, I tell you what, I'm a crossover generation. I can sing those old hymns and worship God. I can also sing these new songs and worship God. Which one's going to reach the young generation? I want to embrace that. I want to move into the future. I hope you're hearing me because we need both generations. There's John who's inexperienced and a little bit un un not confident, so he stops outside. And there's old Peter who charges right in. We need both sides. If you charge right in without thinking it through, you're in trouble. And if you stand on the outside looking, 
waiting to see what you should do next, you're never going to get anything done. We need both generations. I need to move on. Here's number four. The fourth thing we learned from our story, the tomb was switching. The tomb is different. It's not the same. There's three different characters in our story that saw the tomb. And they each saw something different. They each saw something significant. Just as each of us, when we look at the cross, we're going to see something different. Mary was the first one. Mary got to the tomb and saw that the stone was rolled away. That's what she saw. The stone had been rolled away. And she didn't understand it. She was scratching her head. She was confused. Who can solve this? Who can explain it? It was a big mystery to her. She didn't know what to do. But one thing she saw when she saw the stoners rolled away is there's something to this. I don't know what it is, but there's something to this. Maybe you're here this morning and you are at a position in your life where you're, you're saying, I don't know if I'm interested in that Jesus stuff. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I want to identify with a, with a particular church. But every, everybody here in the church this morning, they're not all nuts. <laughs> there must be something to this. There must be something to it. How can responsible people who have their life together be believers in the resurrection that I can't understand? There's something to this. John's the next one. He comes upon there, and he not only sees the stone rolled away, he looks in, and he sees the linen clothes. Back then, they didn't put a deceased person in a casket like they do today, or cremate. In, in Jesus' day, they would wrap the body in a shroud, they would lay that shroud, that cloth, in the tomb, and then they would back off and close it and wait till the body decomposed and then go in and gather the stones. He looked in, and he saw the cloths, the clothes they wrapped him in, lying there, folded neatly to the side. Now, if I was in there, and I had been through that torture, and God raised me from the dead, I don't think I would be too worried about folding up the dirty clothes. I don't think I would. I don't think you would either. Your first intent is to get out of there. That's a place of death. You're alive. You went out of there. So Mary said, there's got to be something to this. John said, I'm going to look into this. Not just maybe there's something to it. He's going to look into it. He's going to step in. He wants to look himself. And maybe you're at the place in your life that you're here this morning and you're saying to yourself, I, wanted, I, I know there's something to this and I'm interested. I'm going to look into this. I want to explore this a little deeper. I want to take a next step step further on this journey. And then comes Peter. He runs right in. And says, Peter saw and believed. He didn't just see there was something to it. 
And he didn't just decide to look into it. He decided to go inside. If you want a spiritual relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you got to get in. You got to step in. How you get in is when you simply say a prayer and say, I'm a sinner. I'm separated from you. God, forgive my sin. I'm going to step into this covenant relationship. I'm going to ask Jesus to lead me, guide me, be my Lord and my Savior. That's when you step in. And when you step in, amazing things begin to happen. Your windows begin to shake, your walls begin to rattle, and everything begins to change as you step into this renewed relationship with God. And the Holy Spirit will move in your life. Peter had to get inside, and so do you. Here's number five. The fifth part of the story is the mystery. There's one thing that every denomination of Christianity today will recognize is that there is a mystery about this God thing. The first part of the mystery is the incarnation, that God would become man. How did he do that? Why would God, who's the creator of the universe, sitting, sitting on his throne, wherever that is, looking, looking down on us down here with our struggles, why would God send his son, the second part of the Godhead, God himself down here to identify with humans and being born as a baby, helpless baby, with a warrant out for his arrest. His parents had to flee. I'm an American. I don't understand that kind of persecution. I don't understand that kind of fear. Running for his life. He was raised in, down in Egypt uh, brought, brought back. We don't know how old he was when he was brought back. Identified with us and our, uh, how do I say, lack of roots. Our dysfunctional upbringing. Some of us in this room, you had a very dysfunctional upbringing. You had a father did not did not make you feel secure, and you, you paid the price for that all through your life. But we have an adoptive father who wants to step in and embrace us and adopt us, and he will always be there for us. He'll never leave us, never forsake us, his word says. I'm going to hang on to that. I'm going to believe that. The mystery of the incarnation. Why would God want to become man? And how can that happen? How can he be God and man at the same time? How can he do the things God does but be limited in a human body? How can he read people's minds? How can he speak to storms? How can he do that? It's a mystery. And you will never figure it out. We just embrace the mystery. There's another mystery. It's the mystery of the church. The Bible, Paul calls it a mystery. The mystery of the church. That we are, the church is neither, that God doesn't see us as Jewish and Gentiles. He doesn't see us as males and females. He doesn't see us as white and blacks, and everything in between. He doesn't see that. He sees us as one body. 
one body. That's how God sees us. That's a mystery that we won't understand. So I think we're seeing from the story of the resurrection that this is a comedy. And Jesus gets the last laugh. He's turned a negative into a positive. And then there's the mystery of grace. The why me, Lord? People who have bad things happen say, why me, Lord? I've had a good thing happen, and I say, why me, Lord? Am I any better looking than somebody else? Am I any better educated than somebody else? Am I any richer than somebody else? What do I have to offer that other people don't? Why me? Why would God want to work through me? And you should ask that question of yourself, knowing you like you do, knowing your past, knowing your history, knowing your own flaws. Why would God want to give his own life for the likes of you? That's the mystery of grace. And it comes back to amazing grace. Amazing grace. It's amazing because we'll never figure it out. It's a mystery. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for you're the mystery maker. And you've given us a great mystery we'll spend the rest of our lives trying to resolve. Why me? Why you would choose us? It's the mystery of amazing grace. Maybe and while we have our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let me ask, is there anyone here? Maybe you could, maybe you could say, I'm, I'm listening to the story. I'm seeing things a little bit it, from a new perspective this morning. It's like, it's like God is opening my eyes to something. And I, I feel in my heart this tug, this pull. I feel this draw on the inside. It's, it's, it's like God is saying, come home, come home. Step out of your lostness. Come into a right relationship. God wants to show us the right things to do so blessing can come into our life so we can stop doing the wrong things that brings about the curse into our lives. Lord, show us how to do that. Is there anyone here you can say, I want to embrace that. <clears throat> I want to step into the tomb. I want to step into this relationship. I want to accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Would you raise your hand? I'm not going to embarrass anybody, but I want to know who to pray for. Thank you. say this prayer together. Say, let's, let's all say it out loud, and those that raise their hands, you say it as if it's your personal prayer. Let's say it together. Heavenly Father, I believe in you. I believe in Jesus. I believe he went to the cross to pay the price for my sin. And I admit I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me 
I don't want to hurt you anymore. I want to step into your love. I want to step into your plan. So I invite you to be Lord of my life. Today I confess you as my Savior. I ask you to make my life count. Use me to make this world a better place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God is good. If you said that prayer and meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, I believe God heard you. He can hear us all at the same time and doesn't get confused. He knows where we are. And it's, it's easier to take the easy step in embracing him is to have him shake your windows and rattle your walls because he'll do it. Let's stand together. Pastor David's going to lead us in a song about that amazing grace. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. any difference but to step into the kingdom you need to know what that looks like and this just kind of points us in that direction so come see me I'll be glad to give you one let's pray Heavenly Father thank you for being our Father for caring about us putting your arms around us and embracing us help us to be the people you called us to be and launch us out into a dark world knowing the resurrection's coming we pray in Jesus name Amen. Amen. Go with God. He loves you more than you'll ever know.